0: our American stories. And every once in a while, we like to dig into the world of entertainment. And we love this day's in history, and sometimes we merge the two. History isn't just George Washington and men in wigs. It's women in wigs in the entertainment business. And Lucille Ball passed away this day in history in 1989. She was born in August 6, 1911, in Jamestown, New York to Henry Durrell Ball and his wife, Desiree. And this improbable start led to one of the iconic careers in American entertainment history, a trailblazer, a first of firsts, influenced so many other performers, one of whom we'll cover in this hour too, Carol Burnett. Lucille Ball, no doubt, had a gigantic influence. The two actually performed quite a bit together as their careers arced and overlapped. Lucille Ball starting to ebb as Cal Burnett's was starting to rise. And Cal Burnett, well, that was one of the great shows in the history of television. You can put on any of them. I dare you, I defy you to not laugh at this remarkable ensemble comedy. And it's not comedy like anyone's ever seen before or after, frankly. It was unique. But on to Lucille Ball. The oldest of the couple's two children. Lucille and her little brother had a hard childhood, shaped by tragedy and a lack of money. By the way, we hear this over and over again with comedians' lives. Their tough lives. Ball's father died in February 1915, when he was struck with typhoid fever. For Ball, just three years old at the time, this would serve as the young girl's first real significant memory. Ouch. By the age of 11, Lucille enrolled in drama school. And by 1927, she had found work as a model. By the way, take a look at pictures of the young Lucille Ball. And it is very hard for beautiful women to also be funny. It's very hard for beautiful men to also be funny. Think of the great comics who were beautiful, male or female. Keep thinking. And while you keep thinking, we'll tell you the story. You're going to come up with nobody. And by the way, Lucille Ball made herself look unbeautiful. She knew that the beauty had to be cut. So she shaped her hair in ways that made her look ordinary. She didn't make herself up. She dressed dowdy. She had a stunning figure. You'd never know it. All for the laughs. All for the laughs. In the early 1930s, she moved to Hollywood and found a role on a musical comedy. And in 1937, she had a sizable part in the film Stage Door. And that was with Katherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers. And by the way, she steals every scene every scene Ball would appear in 72 movies during her career, one of her earliest a movie called Dance Girl Dance from 1940, introduced her to a handsome Cuban bandleader named Desi Arnaz
1: I am just a sweet young thing of 22 (laughs) or so I never sink to smoke or drink. My life is one long.
2: What? No.
1: (laughs) I finished at Miss Sniffing School, a model debutante. I know each fork and spoon and rule. I don't say can't, but can't. My etiquette is ooh, may we. I pour a proper pot of tea. And even when I need a nip, I never, never, never slip. Well, almost never. <laughs> oh, cut it out, fellas.
0: And there it is, right there. Everything the wit, the timing, the sass, spunky, sexy, playing with her sexuality. And comfortable with men.
3: Knowing exactly where to stop the
0: accent. Knowing exactly when to stop. And when to shut up. And that's the key to comedy. Silence. Ball dyed her hair red in 1942. At the request of MGM. She was looking at a stagnant movie career. And unable to break into a starring role. As a result, Arnaz pushed his wife to try broadcasting. Broadcasting. And it wasn't long before Ball landed a lead part in the radio comedy, My Favorite Husband. This clip from an episode titled Vacation Time, originally aired April 29th, 1949.
4: As we look in on the Coopers today, it is a cold, rainy afternoon. And Liz is in her bedroom. Hey, wait a minute, that's funny. It's raining outside, but Liz is standing in front of the mirror wearing a backless, strapless sundress.
1: Katie, come here a will you? Uh, Yes, Mrs. Cooper, what is this? How do you like my new sundress? Oh, where is it? I'm wearing it. (laughs) Is that all there is to it? Doesn't something go over there? No, this is that latest style. Doesn't it look like I've been poured into it? It certainly does. I only hope you don't spill over. Do you like it, Katie? Do you think I'll make an impression in this? Impression? You'll make a dent. How do you without any strap. It's held up by faith, hope, and don't exhale any more than you have to. My goodness, look at all these play clothes on the bed. Did you buy all these this morning? Yes, I just couldn't resist them, Katie. Isn't it awful? But I want to look good for George. After all, he's going to see a lot of me this summer. So is everybody else. (laughs) Oh, you're just old-fashioned, Katie. If you think that sundress is daring, look at my new French bathing suit. It's there on the bed. I don't see it. Here's your slacks, pedal pushers, your beach rope, and this little blue handkerchief. Well, that's funny. Oh, here it is. No wonder you couldn't see the bathing suit. It was under the handkerchief.
0: And there you had it. My favorite husband caught the attention of CBS executives who wanted her to recreate something like it on the small screen. And by the way, it was just the beginning of television. Good luck and serendipity have so much to do in life. But she didn't quit when she was having a problem. She tried something new. Ball, though, insisted it include her real-life husband, something the network wasn't interested in at all. So Ball walked away. And with Desi, they put together an I Love Lucy-like vaudeville act and took it on the road. Success soon greeted the pair, so too did a contract from CBS. More on this day in history, Lucille Ball passed away. We'll be back. This is Lee Habib, and it's this day in history time, brought to you as always by Hillsdale College, and we're celebrating the life of Lucille Ball. And I Love Lucy made its debut, and to the television viewing audience across the country, it was immediately apparent that this was a sitcom like no other. Ball and Arnaz knew exactly what they wanted from the network. Their demands included the opportunity to create their new program in Hollywood rather than New York. Where most TV was still being shot. But the biggest hurdle centered on the couple's preference to shoot on film rather than a less expensive format. When CBS told them it would cost too much, Ball and Arnaz agreed to a pay cut. Boy, that's putting your money where your mouth is, huh? Wow. In return, they would retain full ownership rights to the program and run it under their newly formed production company, Desi Lu Productions. Oh my goodness. I Love Lucy touched on many themes, including pregnancy. When Lucy gave birth to little Ricky on January 19th, 1953, the same day the real life Lucy delivered her son Desi Jr., in this scene, Lucy is having a pregnancy craving.
1: Oh, honey, where
4: have you been? What took you so long? What do you mean, what took me so long? I had to go all over town. There's only one store in New York City that makes a papaya used milkshake.
1: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Mmm. Oh. Did you get the dill pickle? (laughs)
4: don't stop having these silly cravings at four o'clock in the morning. I'm going to freeze to death. Here.
1: this pistachio? Yeah,
4: that's pistachio. Here's your spoon. Which is that? Hot fudge.
1: Pour it on top. <laughs> now pour that right on top of this.
4: But honey, these are sardines. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy. <laughs>
0: and you don't have to see it to see it. Because <laughs> she was such a great comedian. And by the way, comedian. We were talking about this groundbreaking woman because take away the woman part of it. She was a feminist before there were feminists, but she was just doing it. And she was better than the guys. And she made it on her own terms. And that was just what was so stunning about Ball. In classic episode of I Love Lucy, the vita meat of Viga Min was a fictitious health <laughs> tonic in the episode Lucy Does a TV Commercial. As she auditions for the role in this commercial, she continually sips from the elixir that contains 23% alcohol. By the end of the sketch, Lucy is sloshed.
1: Hello, friends. I'm your of Benjamin girl. Are you tired, run-down, listless? List. Do you Yes, Vitaminata Vegemin contains vitamins, meat, vegetables, and minerals. Yes, with vitamin Vegemin, you can spoon your way to health. All you do is take a big tablespoonful after every meal. <laughs> it's so tasty, too. It tastes just like candy. Well, I'm your vitamin bag here. Are you tired of running down listless? List? <laughs> If you pop out a party, it's so tasty,
0: too. As the title of the show indicated, Lucy was the star and listened to what she just did. Fun, silly, made herself look ridiculous, at ease with humiliating herself for a laugh. While she could at times downplay her hard work, she was a perfectionist. Contrary to perception, rarely was anything ad-libbed. It was routine for the actress to spend hours rehearsing her antics and facial expressions and her groundbreaking work in comedy paved the way for Mary Tyler Moore, Penny Marshall, Carol Burnett and Sybil Shepard. Here, Carol Burnett talks about her friend Lucille Ball being a perfectionist who demanded the best from her staff.
5: Well, she never censored herself from here to here. Whatever she said She was thinking, and it came out. And sometimes you'd think, whew, she's a little like she'll say, What's that light up there for? What are you doing with the light? Like that to the lighting guy. You know, you say, Lucy, I'm doing this exercise. She said, Okay, let me see what you. Great, great. So she was never picking on anybody. She just was the way she was. And uh, they would lay their lives down for her. Because when she said, that's great, she meant it. When she said, that stinks, she meant it, but it was never personal.
0: During its six-year run, I Love Lucy's success was unrivaled. Four of its seasons, the sitcom was number one in the country. In 1953, the program captured an unheard of 63.7 audience share, which included a 71.1 rating for the episode that featured Little Ricky's birth. A turnout that surpassed the television audience for President Eisenhower's inauguration ceremonies. That's crazy. While the show ended in 1957, Desilu Productions continued on, producing more television hits like Our Miss Brooks, Make Room for Daddy, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Untouchables, Star Trek, and Mission Impossible. Not bad. In 1960, Ball and Arnez divorced. Two years later, Ball bought out her former husband and took over Desilu Productions, making her the first woman to run a major television production studio. Wow. She eventually sold the company to Gulf and Western in 1967 for $17 million. Here's Lucille on The Johnny Carson Show back in 1969. Her and Johnny talk about how much the television world had changed up to that point. You're not getting tired of doing television, are you? Did you get to a point once where you were going to quit and says...
2: No, I never got to a point where I was going to quit. I've been on 18 years. No, not 18 years. Yes, 18 years. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Of course, television has changed quite a bit since I started. It has. I see the reruns occasionally and the skirts and the styles. That's the only... The comedy is still great. Mm -hmm. When I first started in television, I appeared on our show in... um, uh, shall I say, a slightly pregnant condition, That's right. which we were asked to refer to as expecting, because some of the viewers had complained. Imagine complaining about that. Nowadays, you not only see people, women, pregnant, but
0: how they got that way. <laughs> <laughs> true.
2: You're, you're right. true.
6: You're right. That is true.
0: That is true. More acting work followed, including a pair of sitcoms, The Lucy Show, Sixty-two to sixty-eight, and here's Lucy, sixty-eight to seventy-three. Both achieved a modest level of success, but neither captured the magic that had defined her earlier program with Arnez. In nineteen seventy-four, Lucille told Barbara Walters what she thought of Desi.
2: He had his own band, and he was in a play in New York, and he was a kid when you were married. When but we were then, first married. at the success, we build up right, a lot of things. Right. But, but even while they were building, them. they would not believe that he was doing the building. Yeah. And he was doing the successful building of a very well-run empire. I was doing the acting and having the children. I, was, I had no part of it. I took that on much later. I married a loser before. They, he, he could win, win, high, high, high stakes. He could work very hard. He was brilliant. But he had to lose.
0: When the Kennedy Center honored Lucille Ball in 1986, Desi Arnaz had just died five days earlier following a long bout with cancer. He wrote a touching statement for this event, which is read here by Robert Stack. Lucy struggled to keep her composure while the letter was read. She was sitting next to Ronald and Nancy Reagan at the time.
6: I love Lucy at just one mission, to make people laugh. Lucy gave it a rare quality. She can perform the wildest, even the messiest physical comedy without losing her feminine appeal. The New York Times asked me to divide the credit for its success between the writers, the directors, and the cast. I told them, give Lucy 90% of the credit and divide the other 10% among the rest of us. Desi concluded, Lucy was the show. Viv, Fred, and I were just props. Damn good props, but props nevertheless. P.S. I love Lucy
0: it was never just the title. And Lucille, on April 26, 1989, died. Carol Burnett remembers the first time she met her hero.
5: First time I met Lucy was uh, when I was in an off-Broadway show called Once Upon a Mattress, and this was on the second night after we opened. I can still remember the date. was May 12, 1959. I thought I had recovered from my opening night nerves, but I really became a total wreck when the word came backstage that Lucille Ball was in the audience. Somehow I managed to cover my jitters and I fooled everybody, except Lucy. After the show, she came backstage and she sat with me for nearly an hour, and by the time she left, I was completely calmed down.
0: This is Lee Habib, and on the day Lucille Ball died, Cal Burnett was actually born on the same day. When we come back, Cal Burnett's life, this day in history. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to the theme music to The Carol Burnett Show. And on the day that Lucille Ball died, which is today, April 26th, Carol Burnett was born quite a number of years later, but same day. What a remarkable thing. Perhaps the two greatest comedians of their era, and I believe just the two best comedians. And let's just say they would have been... Honored to be called comedians And not just comedians In fact I think they would have felt slighted If you only called them comedians Because they rose Both of them rose above their women's status They were both the leads Men played the subordinate parts With Carol Burnett several brilliant men Played the subordinate part Some of the best comic actors in history Couldn't hold a candle to her None of those guys could have done their own show No chance And by the way what studs Harvey Corman, particularly was in subordinating their talents to a woman at a time when nobody did. But they knew greatness was happening, and I don't think there was a better show in history than the Carol Burnett show. That's just my humble opinion. She was born this day in history in 1933, one of the most popular comedians on television. She was born in San Antonio, Texas to Joseph and Ina Burnett. After her parents divorced in the late 1930s, Carol moved in with her grandmother to a small apartment in Hollywood, California. And again, folks, it's a theme you'll hear over and over and over. Pain. Lots of it. And comedians running to comedy as a refuge from dysfunctional childhoods, very often painful memories. Here's Carol talking about those early years living with her grandmother, whom she calls a hypochondriacal, christian scientist whatever that is who liked to seduce by the way she liked to seduce young men
5: we had a one room and with the murphy pull down bed which never went back up into the wall because my grandmother was always lying down on it and saying i don't know if i can live another day (laughs) You know, and she was always feeling her pulse. But what was funny was, she she, she was a Christian Scientist, <laughs> and, and you know, she but she was a hypochondriacal Christian Scientist. So she'd say, "Okay, now i the, as they say in Christian Science, know the truth for me, which means you know, there's you're not going to be ill and everything's going to be fine." And so I'd be a little girl and I'd be doing that, you know, and then she'd say. Go get me an aspirin. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so it was like. So I got mixed messages and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but then I found out years later when I was writing a, an autobiography or a memoir, I should say, uh, I found out she. I known that she'd been married three times. That I knew, and then I found out that she'd been married six times. She had actually. Um, seduced her second husband, who was, uh, uh, she had taught him piano lessons, and uh, she, um, uh, he was quite a bit younger, and she, and he uh, eloped to Texas from Arkansas, and uh, his mother came and got him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, we were laughing, but my goodness, what a thing to discover, ouch, you didn't even know your mom, you didn't even know how many husbands she had. That's painful. After studying theater arts and English at the University of California at Los Angeles as an aspiring playwright, Burnett left school early and made her way to New York City with her boyfriend in hopes of breaking into acting. She made her first TV appearance in the early 1950s with a short stint on a children's TV program. Soon after, she began co-starring with Buddy Hackett on the sitcom Stanley, and that's 1956 to 7, and in 59, Burnett became a regular on The Gary Moore Show. Over the years, she was also featured on occasional CBS specials. Already a popular performer, she got her own comedy variety show, The Carol Burnett Show, in 1967. In addition to Burnett, the cast consisted of Vicki Lawrence, Harvey Corman, Lyle Wagoner, Tim Conway, and Dick Van Dyke. In a recent interview, Carol told Seth Meyers how she got the Carol Burnett show on the air after she was told that variety shows were a man's game.
5: I had a peculiar contract with uh, CBS. It was a 10-year contract. And uh, within the first five years, there was a clause, a wonderful clause, that said that if I wanted to do a one-hour variety show, within the first five years, they would have to put it on, whether they wanted to or not. That's a good... You had a good lawyer. I sure did. Yeah. But, you know, I I never thought I would want to do it until about the last week of the fifth year. Uh Uh-huh. We just bought a house in California. We put a down payment on it, and I had not been employed that much. Got it. Yeah, and I said, you know what? Maybe we'd better uh, push that button, (laughs) you know? And so I called uh, CBS back here in New York, one of the vice presidents, and I said, you know, I, I... Oh, and it was, like, between Christmas and New Year's, you know, so... Okay, it was a very small last, window. ...last five days. And he, I said, I want to push that button, and he went, huh? <laughs> he had totally, they'd totally forgotten about it. Oh, wow. And they uh, got a bunch of lawyers out of uh, Christmas parties that night, and, <laughs> and he called me back the next day, and he said, well, yeah, Carol, I see that, but, you know, variety, comedy variety... It's not for gals. It's a man's game.
3: Oh, no. Right. Oh,
5: no. <laughs> yeah. He said, you know, it's, it's Caesar, it's Jackie Gleason, now it's Dean Martin. He said, you know, we've got this great sitcom we'd love you to do called Here's Agnes. Oh, no. <laughs> I bet he didn't say it Um, like that. It's called, here's Agnes. (laughs) No, he could just see it. Yeah. And I said, but I don't want to be Agnes. I don't want to be the same person week after week. Mm -hmm. I'm a sketch comedian. I want to be different characters. I want music, guest stars, a rep company, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they had to put us on the air. If I hadn't had that clause in the contract, I wouldn't be here tonight. Oh, my goodness. Well, no, because Here's Agnes would have been the biggest show. I wouldn't have said, now the star of the longest-running sitcom, Here's Agnes. Hi, there.
0: (laughs) No, but that's not actually true, because Carol Burnett wouldn't have been good in that. This is the thing. Seth's wrong. Seth and Carol talk about the intense production schedule of that Carol Burnett show.
5: The most episodes I ever did in a season of SNL, which had a far bigger cast than The Carol Burnett Show, I'm sure more writers, was 22. You did 30 in your first year. Yes. And then down to 20, only 20, like 28. 28, and then I think around the fifth, sixth year, then we settled in for 26. I can't even imagine. And how much time, I mean, obviously, it doesn't give you more than a week to prepare for each episode, I'm assuming. Right, right, I mean, that's unreal to me. I can't But we would do two shows on Fridays. Okay. uh, The same uh, tape in front of an audience. And and then we uh, five o'clock and then we do an eight o'clock show in front of a different audience, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, we would tape about an hour and 15 minutes with all the music, the sketches, the costume changes, all of that in about two hours. We'd be out of there in time to go to dinner.
0: Amazing. Amazing. And when we come back, we're going to dig into some of the best scenes from the Carol Burnett show, more about her life. And what a thing. By the way, we learned this about Dolly Parton, too. Her ability to negotiate for herself. We did an hour on her. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org. That toughness to just say, no, here's how my career is going to go. I'm leaving this show. I'm keeping my song, I Will Always Love You. We learned that Elvis Presley wanted it, and he wanted half the publishing. And she said no at a time when she desperately needed the money, and she needed the hit. And my goodness, Elvis would have made it a hit. But many, many years later, Whitney Houston made it a gigantic hit and made Dolly Parton a small fortune. And so these are remarkable women. They're They're not just talented. They're groundbreakers. They're pioneers. And they're business people. They're fierce business people, and all to keep their independence, all to protect their art. That's what it was really about. It wasn't about business. It was, I will not let somebody else control who I am on the air period more on this remarkable life story carol burnett born on this day in history This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The life of Carol Burnett. We just did the life of Lucille Ball. Born and died, both of them, on the same day. Ball died on this day in history, and Carol Burnett was born. And let's take you to the beginning of the very first Carol Burnett show, which originally aired on September 11th, 1967. She breaks the fourth wall. She does something no one else had ever done before in television. She actually takes a few questions from the audience which he turned into a stand-up routine.
6: CBS presents this program in color.
5: Welcome to our, our first show that we're doing. I'm real excited and very... very- Happy that you're all with us tonight. Looks like we got a nice full group. Could you bump up the lights so I could see? Oh, gorgeous! While we're uh, getting ready back there, b- b- before the opening number, I just uh, thought it'd be nice to come out and chat and get to know you, and you get to know me, and everything before we start. So, if you have any questions at all you'd like to ask, don't hesitate to uh, ask. Anything at all you want you want to know about the show or who's on or Uh, what? Yes, sir. Who's on? Oh, you just thought that up.
0: (laughs) And that's the thing. She planted some questions. She was making fun of the entire medium itself, standing on its head. It's not the funniest segment. We didn't want to do that. The purpose of that was to show you that from the beginning, she wanted to break new ground. And back then, it was just bringing on the best new celebrity. It was all about which celebrities you could snag. And she said, no, my crew's going to become the celebrity. Carol Burnett show did hundreds of hilarious sketches over the years. In this clip, Carol's character is in bed with her husband, who is played by Tim Conway, when they get a late-night wrong number.
4: Hello? Who was it? I don't know. Didn't say anything, just hung up. Why'd they hang
5: up?
4: probably had the wrong number
5: why would someone call a wrong number at this time of (laughs) night
7: calling the wrong number any time of night
5: why would they pick this number
7: I don't think they picked this number probably just dialed got the wrong number
5: is it a signal
6: (laughs) What a signal.
5: Your friend that called.
6: He's not my friend.
5: He's not? No. But you said they didn't say anything. No.
7: They didn't.
5: And how do you know it's a he? I don't. But you just said, he's not my friend.
7: Well, it's just a figure of speech when you say that, see? What I should have said was, whoever it was didn't say
5: anything. Why didn't you say that?
0: I don't know.
6: I wish I would have.
0: (laughs) By the way, if you've ever dated or known or have a family member who's a paranoid, that is what it sounds like. And Burnett would play all these different characters and slip in and out of them. That sketch went on for another seven minutes. It just kept going and going. What great actors. (laughs) What great actors. In November 1976, the series' 10th year, The Carol Burnett Show presented its ultimate classic sketch, Went With the Wind, a takeoff on the 1939 film Gone With the Wind, which had aired for the first time that month on NBC the week before. Carol reflects on how it all came together and nearly tore her apart physically.
5: Gone with the Wind was going to be shown in its entirety. So I went to the writers and I said, you know, uh, we should do a takeoff on that and say, if for those of you who can't sit for four hours and watch Gone with the Wind, here's, here's our version. <laughs> Remember
4: me, Miss Starlet?
5: Oh, my goodness, I thought she jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. And so two of our young writers, he had done his thesis in college on Gone with the Wind. So he knew every scene. So they put together this 20 minutes Good of, I think, brilliant writing. Back. When Harvey says, I love that dress, his gown is gorgeous, and I say, I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it, it was a brilliant line. That, that, that gown is gorgeous.
6: <laughs> Thank you.
7: I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it. <laughs> Wait, <did> you <laughs> <at> you...
5: <laughs> I really fell down those stairs nine times that day because we did... Because I, I fall down three times in the sketch. But we did a rehearsal in the morning, a dress rehearsal in front of an audience in the afternoon, and then the air show. So that's nine times I tumble down the stairs.
0: And that's the thing. And again, we got back to the meticulous nature of Lucille Ball. Trust me, this was one hardworking person, too. There's a tremendous piece on PBS on, on Carol Burnett and the work ethos of her and her crew. And they didn't wing it. They, they ultimately did live performance. But boy, did they practice. Here's another clip from The Burnett Show where they tackle the subject of political correctness within television production
5: things about doing a weekly television show is making sure that you don't offend anybody and that's really kind of hard because there's so many different people from different walks of life and various ethnic groups watching the show that that we really have to be very careful so what we try to do is censor ourselves ahead of time before we go on the air so that we won't accidentally say anything that could possibly offend somebody and you know still sometimes it doesn't work but let me show you what I mean you all know Vicki Lawrence Show you how we rehearse the sketch. Like we're gonna we're gonna rehearse the sketch now for next week's show. Okay. Don't go away. Come in. Good morning, Mrs. Goldenbaum.
7: Uh, hold mm-hmm. it, Carol. Uh, yep.
6: that name is a little Jewish.
5: Oh, uh, that voice is our director, Dave Powers. Yeah, Dave.
6: Uh, could we change it to Smith just to be safe?
5: Okay, The change Goldenbaum to Smith. Okay. You got all right. Uh, good morning, Mrs. Smith. How's Mr. Goldenbaum? <laughs> <laughs> Carol, yeah. uh, let's just drop it. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I'm ahead of you, right, got it. Okay, Dave. Uh, right, darling. Uh, <clears throat> good morning, Mrs. Smith. Hello, Mrs. Vitelli. Excuse th- me. Uh, oh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Carmine uh, Sandro, our prop man. Yes, Carmine. Well,
8: I was just wondering why you mentioned Vitelli. I oh, have no. a good friend, Vitelli, who's just had to go to the hospital for an operation, oh, and I'm, I just didn't think... that.
5: sorry. There. Well, isn't that a coincidence? Same it name. It yeah, sure is. Okay, Carmine, okay, we'll, we'll change the name. We didn't mean to offend her. Thank uh, you, Ms. Bernard. Okay, call me Carol. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Dave. Uh, make
7: it
8: Jones,
3: and okay.
5: the will make it Jones. Okay. Wait a minute.
3: Dave, why Jones? Okay. And if you're gonna use Jones, why use a waker?
5: There are a lot of white people. There are a lot of white people named Jones. Oh, uh, ladies. I never heard of any. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is our cameraman Hans Kaufman. Uh, <laughs>
0: and you know groundbreaking then i'd love to hear her do it today oh my goodness how much more fun that episode could be the show also became known for its closing theme song written by burnett's husband with these lyrics i'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song Seems we just get started and before you know it comes the time we have to say so long From its original broadcast, March 29, 1978, here are the final minutes of The Carol Burnett Show. Carol thanks the crew, talks about her decision to stop the show, and sings, I'm so glad we had this time together one last
5: time. Like graduation, it's a sad and a happy time. It can't be possible that it was 1967, when Harvey, Vicky, Lyle, and I stepped on this stage for the first time, because it does seem as if it were only yesterday. Those cliches really have a habit of uh, punching you in the nose, don't they? Recently, um, a lot of people have been running around and expressing their own opinions as to why I decided to quit at the end of this season. And I think I should be the one to tell you, seeing as how I'm the one who really knows. In our 11 years, we have had four different time slots, and we've had our share of being up there in the ratings and being down there in the ratings. And ratings do not have a thing to do with my decision. If they did, I would have called a halt to the proceedings a long time ago, because there have been many, many times when they've been a lot lower than they've been this season. And now, I do think it's classier to leave before you're asked to. And the fact that CBS picked our show up for a 12th year and was quite adamant about it is very flattering to all of us here on the show. However, I am adamant too, and I, I am so proud of our show and quite simply, I'm no dummy, now is the time to put it to bed and to go on to other things because change is growth. It's hard because all of us around here truly did become a second family. We've been through marriages and divorces and deaths and births. And I know the love that we have shared can never be measured by time. I'm so
0: glad had this time together. And so Carol Burnett did what Jerry Seinfeld did, what Johnny Carson did. They quit while they were ahead. And quit when they were great and still great. This is Lee Habib, the life of Lucille Ball, died this day in history, and the life of Carol Burnett, who was born on this day in history. Two great artists, two amazing women, but most of all, two spectacular entertainers. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. But the
5: time I like the best is any evil. here with you when the time comes and i'm feeling lonely All right,
0: Habib and this is Our American Stories and we talk about everything here on this show. From the arts to music, from sports to history and everything in between. And your stories too. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. And give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Genius, wrote poet Charles Baudelaire is only childhood recalled at will. Few creative artists' lives and works have given more credence to that notion than Maurice Sendak, who was, in the words of the New York Times, widely considered to be the most important children's book artist of the 20th century. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of author and illustrator Maurice Sendak.
3: Philosopher Gaston Bachelard once remarked that each childhood is a nightlight in the bedroom of memories. In Marie Sendak's case, it was the catalyst for more than 100 illustrated children's books that have sold more than 30 million copies in the United States alone. Some titles include The Little Bear Books, Pierre, Chicken Soup with Rice, Where the Wild Things Are, and In the Night Kitchen. Here's Maurice Sendak at his home in Connecticut in 2008.
7: I'm Maurice Sendak, we are now sitting in my barn. It's where I come and work when I want it to be very quiet. There's no radio here, there's no TV, there's nothing here. Just me and Herman, the shepherd, the German shepherd, who says nothing, he doesn't critique my work, doesn't cluck his tongue, and he has to take a leak. He just tells you, you know, straight out.
3: Marie Sendak was the third and youngest child born into a Jewish family on June 10, 1928, in Brooklyn, New York. I was not intended.
7: It was an accident. And my father would say how he'd go to the drugstore and he'd buy everything on the shelf, even bought a little ladder, and he made my mother stand. This is true. He made her stand, and he forced these toxic things down her so she would abort me, and then she would slip and fall off the ladder and if the toxic things didn't work, the fall would work. Well, it worked in making me a completely creeped up kid. (laughs)
4: How'd you find that out?
7: They told me.
4: They told you? They they didn't tell me out
7: of malice. This was, you gotta see, these were things were not, like in the movies, were cruel. These were factual things. We could not afford you. (laughs) Is it something they tell you often? Very often to make me... I don't know why they... I don't know why they did. But it was more a good story.
4: <laughs> it's a story. Yeah, I hour. mean,
7: after a while, they got used to me, like I was going to be there. there. was no easy way to get rid of me. And then my father would talk about watching me get bored. He said, you were the happiest baby I ever saw. The other kids didn't... You came out almost laughing. And then he wrote me once and said, I'll never forget those early days when I would come in in the dark room in the crib and you'd just be laughing all by yourself like a little bell. Like a little bell ringing. wow, wow. What a start I had. What a good beginning. What a hopeful sign that was. What did they do? Break the bell?
3: (laughs) Maurice's sister, Natalie, was nine and his brother, Jack, was five when he was born. Until he was about six, Maurice was a very sick child and spent most of his time in his room watching the world through his window. The window became my movie camera, my television set, he said. He would illustrate what he saw through the window and his brother Jack would write the stories. Both of Maurice's parents were Polish immigrants and had many relatives still living in Poland during the rise of Hitler and his Nazi party. They managed to rescue a few to the United States, but in 1941, on the morning of his bar mitzvah, which is a special ceremony for Jewish boys when they turn 13, Maurice learned every one of his relatives back in Poland had been killed by the Nazis. In the days after the war ended, Maurice found himself a job in Manhattan as an artist with a company that created displays for storefronts. He was so good that he quickly earned himself a promotion. But his new co-workers' dissatisfaction with their jobs caused Maurice to quit, and he moved back in with his family in Brooklyn, picking up where he left off, spending his time staring out the window, sketching. He became particularly interested in a little girl named Rosie. With his window open, he could hear her talking to other children, She would make up games and stories and bully them into playing along. Once, he heard her gleefully describing her own grandmother's death in great detail until the grandmother herself appeared on the steps. Another time, she described a fight between her parents as if she were a radio announcer. She was always the center of attention but, as Marie said, saved the other children from their worst enemy, boredom. Years later, Rosie would become his favorite character, the heroine of his 1960 book, The Sign on Rosie's Door.
7: I didn't have a lot of friends. I mostly observed children. I'd sit at my window and I'd draw them, even when I was a child. And I would tell their stories. As the stories floated up to the window, I would write what their stories were. Today, Rosie decided to wear her long red dress. I filled gallons of sketchbooks with rosy stories and other kids' stories. And I kept a journal. It was very bad luck, everybody who saw my work. You all use the same word, like, it's European. Go look at American children's books. You see, you see they have cute upturned noses and a little puff of blonde hair in the front? And I was thinking, I never knew a kid who looked like that, never. They all had squashed heads and thumpy, lumpy bodies. <laughs>
3: That summer in 1948, Maurice's brother Jack was also out of work and living at home. Together, the brothers came up with an idea to make money. They created boxes with tiny wooden figures that moved and acted out scenes from fairy tales.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Maurice Sendak, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we last left off with two unemployed Sendak brothers Maurice and Jack returning to their parents Brooklyn home and spending the summer of 1948 making toys here's Greg Hengler.
3: here's Maurice in 1966
4: speaking of toys I have some here which uh which were made by my brother and myself in 1948 My brother is the mechanical genius and put them together. And these are little fairy tales, which I'm sure you're all very well acquainted with. This is Little Red Riding Hood. It has a lever which, when pulled out, causes Little Red Riding Hood to collapse in mortal terror, the wolf to rear his hideous head above the blanket. And when pushed back again, the world is back to normalcy. She's now standing expectantly, all ready to go through the same routine the rest of eternity. These toys are a family affair. My brother did the mechanics on them. I did the carving on them, and my sister uh, made the blanket over the wolf's bed or grandma's bed. Uh, We spent the whole summer, summer of 1948, making these toys until my father was appalled at having three grown children spending the summer making toys in the house, so we were all dumped out of the house to earn a living.
3: They took them to the most famous toy store in the world, FAO Schwartz in Manhattan. The buyer there loved their toys, but they were much too complicated to be mass-produced and sold. Still, the buyer was so impressed that he offered Maurice a job creating window displays. Maurice excelled and in his off time would hang out in the toy store's book section where he became friends with the woman in charge of buying books. One day, Harper & Brothers book editor Ursula Nordstrom, the woman responsible for the books of authors Laura Ingalls Wilder, E.B. White, and Shel Silverstein, was expected to visit F. A. O. Schwartz. Maurice's drawings were spread out all over the book department. Maurice said it was like putting a huge hook in the water and waiting for a fish to be caught. Maurice caught his fish. Ursula Nordstrom saw Maurice's drawings and the next day offered him a job illustrating a book. They became lifelong friends.
7: That's her, by the way. Her name is Ursula Nordstrom. She made me who I am. She gave me a book every year. She kept me working. I mean, can you imagine mentorship from a publishing house? She intended that I should be an important illustrator. She knew I could be bad habits. I never went to art school. I drew in a clumsy fashion, but she could see beneath that.
3: Over the next five years, Maurice developed his own style. He wanted to add something new. The best illustrated books are the books where the text does one thing and the pictures say something just a little off-center of the language. So they're both doing something. The most boring books are where the pictures are restating the text, he said in an interview. After Rosie, he wrote the Nutshell Library, a set of four tiny books in a box that included chicken soup with rice and Pierre. By 1963, Maurice had written seven books and illustrated more than 40. Five of the books he illustrated had won the coveted Caldecott Honor Medals. At this point, all his books were illustrated in only two or three colors because full-color printing was very expensive. But now, Maurice felt ready to do his first full-color book.
8: Where the wild things
3: are. But before he began drawing, he wanted to be sure the words were absolutely perfect. The final story has only 338 words, but he wrestled over every one of them. Here's Maurice in
8: 1985. Well, the wild things was the big challenge in terms of it was going to be my first picture book. And i was very feeling imperiled about doing this book because full color book picture book form i'd love the picture book form but i hadn't done it yet i'd illustrated other people's picture books but i hadn't done my own so it had to be a significant work and only that it had to come thoroughly out of myself i mean it had to be a subject that was passionately close to my heart um so what was passionately close to my heart was a kid and a kid doing something and whatever that something was was what the book was going to be about. Uh, It was called Where the Wild Horses Are for a very long time until I discovered horrifyingly that I couldn't draw horses so I had to change the title. I changed the title various times to things that I could draw and finally the best thing was things because that could be anything and so my drawing ability wouldn't be challenged by anybody. And then, what do the things look like? Well, I went back into my head as to who were monsters in my life. Well, they were all my uncles and aunts. Bloodshot eyes and big, huge noses and bad teeth. And they would grab you by the cheek and pummel you and say all the conventional banal things adults say, like how cute you are and you look so good we could eat you up. And knowing them, they probably could and would. The real problem in that book was the writing of the book, and how difficult the writing of the book was. Why would a child turn a page? A child isn't polite. I mean, adults will uh, conscientiously read a book they dislike because they feel they should. Children don't feel any such compulsion. If they hate the first two pages, swamo against the wall. That's the end of the book. They don't care if it's won 18 Caldecott awards, right? Okay, so you've got to catch them. You've got to catch them in a kind of rhythmic pattern, in a kind of syncopation that makes them turn that page. The night Max wore his wolf suit, and the, and the, and the bills, and it bills, and you trap them. I mean, they can't get out of the book.
6: The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another. His
7: mother called him a wild thing, and Max said, I'll eat you up.
8: So he was sent to bed without eating anything. It was published to a lot of noise, which I'll skip. I don't think that's very interesting. Uh, Criticism and rages and carings on that this would frighten children. Well, I knew it wouldn't, because it didn't frighten me. (laughs) And I trusted myself in my own instinct, and it didn't frighten children. And if it did frighten some children, well, okay, perhaps it had to. Perhaps, I mean, why would any one book be good for all children? That's silly. I mean, no grown-up book is good for all people, so we mustn't assume that even a book that wins a Caldecott is appropriate for every child reading it. And Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. Then all around, from far away across the world, he smelled good things to eat. So he gave up being king of where the wild things are. But the wild things cried,
2: Oh, please
8: don't go! We'll eat you up! We love you so! And Max said, No.
7: The wild things
5: roared their terrible roars
6: and gnashed
5: their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible
7: eyes and showed their terrible claws.
6: But Max. Stepped into his private boat and waved goodbye. And
8: sailed back over a year. And in and out of weeks. And through a day. And into the night of his very own room. Where he found his supper waiting for him. And it was still hot.
3: Where the Wild Things Are helped change picture books forever. Before it came out, most children's books only talked about nice feelings. After Where the Wild Things Are was released, people started to realize that it was good for a picture book to deal with other feelings like anger and fear. One little boy sent him a fan letter and Maurice sent back an original drawing of a wild thing. But soon after, Maurice got a letter from the boy's mother Jim loved your card so much he ate it, the mother wrote. Maurice always said this was one of the best compliments he ever received. And when we come back, more on the life
0: of Maurice Sendak. It was my favorite children's book, hands down, and I brought it to my little girl, Reagan. And by the way, I was never afraid of those monsters. I thought they were funny and goofy. And I love food, and I had a good family and a good home, and I couldn't wait for the smell of soup and a... And a good meal too. Love the book. Love this story. More on the life of Maury Sendak here on Our American Stories. continue with the life of Maurice Sendak, author of Where the Wild Things Are. And we heard the story behind that epic children's book. Let's continue with his next children's book. Here's Maurice.
8: Um, Then after Wild Things, the next picture book, In the Night Kitchen, was 1970. The reason it took the form of a comic book was because I loved comic books when I was a child. I didn't have children's books. I didn't even know there were children's books until I went to school and we had to sit in the auditorium and hear Pinocchio read to us and Winnie the Pooh read to us. I hated them because I didn't like my teachers and I didn't like being told stories where I had to have my hands clasped in my lap. Anyway, Night Kitchen was going to be a comic book and that was that.
3: In the Night Kitchen was based on Maurice's memory as an 11-year-old with his older sister Natalie. Here's Maurice in 2008.
7: 1939 World's Fair. I was screaming to be taken. I had to go with an older person. And she had a new boyfriend. And somehow she talked to me to accept the idea that they would take me along. Very vexing, very vexing. And I was the seventh heaven. I just loved it. And we stopped at the Sunshine Bakers, little fat bakers, and they were all standing in tears on white platforms. That whole place was so, like a 1930s movie, white, white, carol Lombard white. And all these little midgets came out, little tubby guys with little black mustaches. And the aroma of fresh baking came out of the building, They're probably pumping it out into the air. And I just stood there breathing the smell of bread. And I love the smell of baking bread. And I was just waving back. <laughs> and, and they dumped me. While I was in this trance, my sister and her boyfriend ducked out. And I turned around, and within three minutes, I was crying. And uh, they took me to the police station, where there were about 150 kids all crying, <laughs> all dumped. <laughs> And they put me in a police car. We dropped off a couple of kids. And happily, when we got to my street, I was the only one left of the car. And I asked that to please put the siren on. Please put the siren on. They put the siren on. And I could see coming up, my mother had told everybody. So everybody in the neighborhood had their windows up. All the mothers were leaning out on pillows to watch. And the kids were pointing to me in the car. And when I got out of the car, there was two tall cops on either side of me. And they walked me up the stairs to the apartment, and I, there, was, in the background, was 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 my sister, like like that. And I point I said, "She did this to me. She got rid of me." And my father turned and whack, 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 and beat her up right in front. And I thought there will never be another day as good as this as long as I live.
3: Here's Maurice making one more point on In the Night Kitchen.
8: And it was going to be simple. It was going to look like Windsor McKay a little bit. It was going to look like Mickey Mouse a little bit. It was going to look like everybody I loved. And it was going to tell a story that obsessed me, which is a story about food, which is a story about. Why those little creatures of the 1939 World's Fair, those sunshine bakers with their advertisement that says, uh, we cook while you sleep, why did they do that? Why didn't they wait till I was up? I mean, why did everything good happen when children went to bed? So this was gonna be a book about a kid who gets up at night, hears what's going on, and investigates. It just feels wonderful because it has all the energy and zest that a Mickey Mouse cartoon has for me.
3: And the irresistible little boy hero from In the Night Kitchen is named Mickey after his favorite cartoon character, Mickey Mouse. Here's actor James Gandolfini, best known for his role as Tony Soprano, the mafia boss in HBO's television series, The Sopranos.
6: woke up Good evening. Uh, My name is James Gandolfini. I have the pleasure today to read The Night Kitchen by Morris Sendak. Did you ever hear of Mickey? How he heard a racket in the night And shouted, Quiet down there! And fell through the dark Out of his clothes Past the moon And his mama and papa sleeping tight Into the light of the night kitchen. we the bakers who bake till the dawn so we can have the cake in the morn. Mix Mickey in the batter, chanting milk in the batter, milk in the batter, stir it, scrape it, make it, bake it. And they put that batter up to bake a delicious Mickey cake. But right in the middle of the steaming and the making and the smelling and the baking, Mickey poked through and said, I'm not the milk and the milk's not me, I'm Mickey. So he skipped from the oven into bread dough all ready to rise in the night kitchen. He kneaded and punched it and pounded and pulled till it looked okay. Then Mickey and dough was just on his way. And then the bakers ran up with a measuring cup, howling, milk, milk, milk for the morning cake. What's all the fuss? I'm Mickey the pilot. I get milk the Mickey way. And he grabbed the cup as he flew up, and up, and up, and over the top of the Milky Way in the night kitchen. Mickey the milkman dived down to the bottom, singing, I'm in the milk, and the milk's in me. God bless milk, and God bless me. Then he swam to the top. Pouring milk from his cup into batter below. So the bakers, they mixed it and beat it and baked it. Milk in the batter, milk in the batter. We bake cake and nothing's the matter. Now Mickey in the night kitchen cried, Cock-a-doodle-doo! And slid down the side, straight into bed. Cake-free and dried. And that's why, thanks to Mickey... We have cake every morning. In
3: 1967, Maurice suffered a serious heart attack. He was only 39 years old. He began to think he needed to live someplace calmer than New York City. Eventually, he settled into a farmhouse in the Connecticut countryside. For the next 40 years, Maurice stayed home and worked. In 1981, Maurice published Outside Over There, Here's Maurice.
7: So I want to tell you, if I may, about Outside Over There and how a real-life situation, which was extremely traumatic and very, very painful as a very young child, is then turned into art more than 50 years later. And that was when I was about two years old Lindbergh, Colonel Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped. And it paralyzed the world. Handsome, tall American pilot marries daughter of the Mexican ambassador, and then the baby gets kidnapped. And it gets kidnapped from a house that's called Hopewell, which is a brilliant irony. And it gets kidnapped right under the noses of everybody.
0: And when we come back, more In the story of Maurice Sendak, we're going to hear more about the impact that Lindbergh kidnapping case had not just on him, but so much of America. And again, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Send the link to friends. If it's the kind of storytelling you think the world needs to hear more of in this age of clatter and noise and debate, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Send the link to friends. And support the sponsors of this show, too. Maurice Sendak's story, here on Our American Stories. To the story of Maurice Sendak We left off with him Describing how his Newest entry, the latest entry Children's book was Outside Over There And how it was shaped by the sensational Charles Lindbergh baby kidnapping case Outside Over There Has been described by Sendak As part of a type of children's book Trilogy based on Psychological development From in the night kitchen, toddler To where the wild things are preschool to outside over there, pre-adolescent. Let's continue with Maurice.
7: They were sitting downstairs, husband and wife. They heard a noise. They put it to the march wind. It turned out that what it really was was that somebody had put a very rude, crude ladder from the ground to the baby's bedroom, which was on the second floor took the baby out and climbed down the ladder, but had not accounted for the extra weight on the ladder. So the ladder broke, and the baby fell down and broke his head. Nobody knew this a long time after, so then he took the baby in panic and ran or drove, I don't remember which, for a few miles and dumped it in the woods, not very far away from the house. Okay, that was it. Now I was shopping with my mother. And we were shopping, and we walked past the newsstand. This was about two or three months later, or maybe more. And I looked at the newsstand, and it said, I couldn't read, but I, I remember the word, Lindbergh. It said, Lindbergh baby found dead. And then I a big arrow pointing down to something. because a corpse had been exposed for about three months. I saw it and I went crazy. And I told everybody I'd seen the picture. And finally it got to be the scandal of the family that I had gone nuts. Everyone said, there was no such picture. Stop talking about it. But it was always in my head, always in my head, that now I would die. There was no question about it. Because if the rich gentile baby couldn't make it, then how was I gonna fare? Years later, In Richfield, where I now live, a man writes a book exonerating the man who was accused of having killed the baby, the kidnapper, whose name was Rudolf Hauptmann. And of all things, this man appears in the Richfield Library. So there's only two people there, me and a woman. And every time he said something, I'd correct him, because I knew this case. I knew this case by heart. I had every book written on the case, every photograph that you could take out of a magazine, everything. And so he kept staring at me, and finally he was done, and he came over and said, hey, you really know a lot. I said, yeah, well, I spent a lot of my life up on this story, and he said, let's go have some coffee. I said, sure, because I was curious to talk to him, and he gave me a copy of his book, and uh, he said, so tell me, tell me why. I told him the story, and he said, and you really believed, as a two-year-old, that you saw that picture... He he threw the napkin over, he gave me a pen. He said, draw it. Draw what you remember. So I wrote out what it said, and then I said, then there was something here, and it could be a baby, it could be a boy. I could almost see a profile, I could almost see his nose. And he said, you saw it, and I'm going to show it to you right now. And he had a briefcase. Do you know where my heart was? And he looked through his briefcase, and he pulled out this picture. And there I was seeing it for the second time in my life. And it was exactly, it was a replica. I remembered it exactly. Even for the head being in profile, it was the first issue of the Daily News. And when the Colonel Lindbergh saw it, he threatened to sue them. So on the second issue in the afternoon, it was God. So just a lucky few like me had seen it. And that laid down the basis of a lifetime. You wonder what children see. I mean, the life of the child, what they see and what they hear and what they don't discuss with you or choose not to discuss. The baby looks a certain way all through the book, but there's one picture in the book That is a portrait of Charles Lindbergh, Jr. Here, there's a copy of The Lindbergh Baby. This book is about my sister, that's her, taking care of me, the hardship of it, and the doubleness of it, meaning she wanted, to take care of me and she wanted me to get kidnapped and die all at the same time. My obsession with death, which a lot of my friends laugh at, because I'm I'm always on it, comes from the Lindbergh baby. And the idea that you could die as a child is an infamous insight for a child, infamous. Who else saw it as they passed? Lots of children on the street. Did it affect the ball? And what was that? An accidental occasion of no consequence at all. Not to the world. But it certainly invested me in children forever.
3: When Maurice was a small child, a picture of his dead grandfather hung over his bed. One day, his mother came in to find him trying to climb into the picture. He had a high fever was speaking in Yiddish. His grandfather had spoken in Yiddish, but little Maurice didn't know how to speak the language. His mother thought her father's ghost was trying to lure her son back into the spirit world. To stop him, she tore the picture into little pieces. Years later, Maurice found them. He took the pieces to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where someone spent months putting them back together. From then on, the picture hung over Maurice's bed. Someday, he told people, I'm going to go through the picture. On May 8th, 2012, at 83 years of age, he did.
7: And I did some very good books, which mostly is an isolationist form of life, doing books, doing pictures. And is the only true happiness I've ever, ever enjoyed in my life. It's sublime to just go into another room and make pictures. It's magic time, where all your weaknesses of character and all blemishes of personality and whatever else torments you fades away. It just as not matter. You're doing the one thing you want to do and you do it well and you know you do it well and uh, you're happy. The whole promise is to do the work, sitting down at the drawing table, turning on the radio. And I think what a transcendent life this is, that I'm doing everything I want to do. In that moment, I feel like I'm a lucky man. I'm trying very hard to concentrate on what is here, what I can see, what I can smell, what I can feel, making that the important business of life. Just looking out the window, the colors that I see, reading Charles Dickens at night for an hour, little rituals I have of listening to Mozart, I'm learning how not to take myself so seriously. That what I'm working on, what I'd like to work on, it's not earth-shakingly important anymore. I am not earth-shakingly important. So what am I saying? I'm just clearing the decks for a simple death. You're done with your work. You're done with your life and your life was your work. I think what I've offered is different, but not because I drew better than anybody or wrote better than anybody, but because I was more honest than anybody. And in the discussion of children and the lives of children and the fantasies of children and the language of children, I said anything I wanted because I don't believe in children. I don't believe in childhood. I don't believe that it's demarcation well, you must tell them that. Oh, you must tell them that. You tell them anything you want. Just tell them if it's true. If it's true, you tell them. I have adult thoughts in my head, experiences, but I'm never going to talk about them. I'm never going to write about them. Why is my needle stuck in childhood? I don't know. I don't know. Yes,
0: that's where
3: my heart is. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And what a remarkable story. Great job, as always, Greg. I'm saying about kids, the life they see and hear, and what they discuss and choose not to discuss. That false demarcation between childhood and adulthood. He broke it. He shattered it. Changed the world as we know it. By the way, Where the Wild Things is ranked by the USA Today as a top five children's book of all time. And if you hear, want to hear another terrific story about a children's book writer, Shel Silverstein, the hour we did on him was just superb. The Giving Tree, he wrote that. He also wrote A, a Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash, Shel Silverstein. You can find that at ouramericannetwork.org. The story of Maurice Sendak, the story of childhood... Straight through adulthood, he never let go of being young and seeing the world through that prism. His story here on Our American Stories.